Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning with verse 26. The account in Matthew's Gospel with regard to the events that we're going to be looking at are not complete in every detail. He gives a lot of information, but skips over many important things that are recorded in other places. In John's Gospel, for instance, chapters 13 through 17 detail a lot of the things that Jesus said during this particular time in which we find Matthew recording what he does here in this portion that we'll be looking at this morning. So we'll be looking at part of John's Gospel as well as we move forward from this particular point in the message that Matthew brings regarding the passion of Christ. And again, beginning with verse 26, he's already identified the fact that there will be one who will betray him. They all had said, is it I? Did I? Am I the one? He didn't give them an answer until the last one who asked the question. Found in verse 25, Judas, the betrayer, asked, Lord, is it I? Actually, he didn't say Lord. He said Rabbi. He never called Jesus Lord, Adonai. And I believe that's significant. Rabbi. Master, is it I? And Jesus responded, you have said it. That's a way that Jesus uses to give an affirmation of what was just asked of him. You have said it. Verse 26 continues the account in Matthew by saying these words, And it was as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take Eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This portion of Scripture is known as the Last Supper. The event is the Passover. The Jewish feast of Passover is being celebrated by Jews. Jerusalem is swamped with an influx of many, many Jews coming from all over the world, then known world, to worship the Lord on this particular feast day. And the number of people in the city of Jerusalem according to Josephus, was perhaps over two million souls. We derive that fact from the fact that Josephus records for us that there were 200,000 lambs slaughtered on that particular feast day in Jerusalem. And it is inferred in the Word of God that a household needed to be at least ten persons in order to participate in the Passover celebration together in one house. So multiply the ten times 200,000, you have over two million, two, two million people. A very large number of people swamping the city of Jerusalem, overwhelming the resources in the city. But it was for a very particular reason. They were worshiping their Lord, their Lord as was required by the Word of God through Moses. The Passover feast consisted of several elements that they needed to observe on a yearly basis. 
Not only was it that they had to eat a lamb that had been slaughtered for that purpose, but they also had certain elements like bitter herbs reminding them of the bitterness of their journeying as slaves in Egypt and other things that they had. One of them is what is referred to in the New Testament as sop, which is a combination of certain uh, nuts and fruits that they would put into a bowl and, and make it into a sauce or sop that they would dip their bread in. And that reminded of, of the deliverance from Egypt, as well as the fact that the Passover lamb would remind them that God passed over them when he dealt with the sin of Egypt in not letting his people go. And that Passover was for those who put blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the door to make sure that the Lord would pass by or pass over them. But anyone who neglected that command of putting the blood on the doorpost would lose the firstborn. And many souls lost the firstborn of their households in that particular event. So this Passover meal commemorates all of those things and more besides. But Jesus is here introducing something to them that they would never have observed ever before. When he tells them after having drunk that cup of blessing, he tells them that this is a completion, a fulfillment of something of great importance. He said, with this blood, I am establishing a new covenant. Not like the old covenant, but a new covenant. One that they would observe from that time on and recognize that the bread and the wine that they were consuming at that particular point in the celebration of Passover was a change in direction for them as the people of God who were trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He used that institution of the bread and the cup to establish, again, what he called the new covenant. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, the old covenant they were very familiar with. The old covenant was what Moses had given to the people of Israel as they entered into the promised land and having been delivered from Egypt, they were to worship the Lord their God under this covenantal arrangement that God had made through Moses on their behalf. And that covenant was a covenant that required them to obey all of the commands that he had given to Moses or through Moses to them. God initiated that covenant. Moses was the mediator. And when Moses told the people that God wanted to establish a covenant, their response was obedience. They said, all that he commands us, we will do. And so the covenant was ratified by their agreement to do everything that God had required of them. And Moses, the man, was a mediator of that Old Testament, that Old Covenant that would be established at that time and be their responsibility to observe all their days. Jesus comes into this particular time frame, this event that they are now in this upper room, just the twelve of them plus him, and he is instituting a new covenant. So you wonder, well, what does that mean? It means simply this. He is a mediator of a covenant that they had never ever experienced with God before until that time. 
But it was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament scripture of Jeremiah. You'll find that reference to a new covenant given there in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following, where Jeremiah says, God speaking, I will bring a new covenant to you, my people, he says. I will put my law in your heart. You won't have to observe these things that I have been requiring of you under that old covenant. With this new covenant, it will automatically be instilled in you. You will have this law written in your hearts of flesh, not in hearts of stone, not on stone tablets, but in your heart. There is a change under this new covenant that God is telling through Jeremiah the people of Israel and us that this new covenant would be a covenant where God would do everything that was necessary. In other words, a covenant is an agreement between one and another with some mediator between them. This covenant that he is talking about in Jeremiah and Jesus is ratifying here is a covenant that says God initiates this through his mediator, Jesus Christ, and the responsibility of those who receive it is just simply to believe it. Not to have to do something, but to accept it as a free gift of God. And that is the difference between the old covenant and the new. The old covenant required the people of God to do things on their their response to the wonderful blessings that God would promise them if they were willing to obey. This new covenant is based upon nothing that you and I are doing. It's all based upon what God is doing. And how can it be that just a man could represent man to God and God to man? The only way that that can be possible is if that mediator is both God and man. He fulfilled that which was required by the Word of God in every detail. So that new covenant that he's made here is a covenant that stands still today. And so the bread and the cup that we will be participating in later on in this service is a reminder for all of us of what Jesus has done from that moment of time when he said, I am with this example of this symbol of That which was necessary, the blood that needed to be shed. I am through this symbol and through the symbol of the bread that would be broken, establishing this new covenant for all who would participate in this. And when they do, they would be remembering all of these things that he has accomplished until that day when all of us, not just the twelve apostles, but all of us who believe, will drink it together with him in the kingdom of God. This is great news for everyone to understand and to accept, to appropriate, to believe, and to apply in our daily lives. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ all your days and recognize that you are under a new covenant. You are still wanting to obey the things of God if you are part of that new covenant. There is No reason why any one of us should think, well, we don't have to worry about obeying God now because we're under this new covenant and God doesn't require it of me. No, he does not require anything of you in that sense. But he does require that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving him in such a way would be proven by those things that you do on his behalf. 
in obedience to His Word to you. We do those things not because we have to, but because we love to. We want to please Him. We want to be found accepted by Him. We want to please Him. But it has nothing to do with our salvation. It has only to do with our willingness to be obedient outside of the law to what He is expecting of us. And that is what the Spirit of God does for us. He enables us to go in that direction, do those things without making any effort on our part, without bearing any responsibility to be perfect. But He tells us we are to be perfect. How can we be perfect? It's only by the Spirit of God who enables us. Those are the things that we need to comprehend, understand, and apply. And this is what Jesus here is introducing. And the rest of the New Testament emphasizes those very same truths. So we read this New Testament as it is a fulfillment of the Old Testament that was concealing the revelation that God wanted us to know. And the New Testament is revealing that revelation in the name of Jesus Christ. Matthew was right with regard to his statement pertaining to the, the name Jesus. Yeshua HaMashiach is the way it's pronounced in the Hebrew language. Yeshua or Yahweh saves. HaMashiach, the Messiah. Yehoshua is another way of saying the same thing with regard to the name Jesus. Or Joshua, an Old Testament saint who followed after Moses, leading the people into Israel. Moses couldn't lead the people into Israel, into the land, but Joshua did. Moses represented the law. Joshua represented grace. We keep seeing all of these beautiful pictures, illustrations of the grace and mercy of our Lord throughout all of the Old Testament Scriptures and into the New. But here in this portion, we see the power of God manifest and the name of God, Jesus Christ, glorified. In one of the Psalms, and I forget which Psalm it is, you can maybe look it up in a concordance, it talks about the name of the Lord. And it says, Your name, O Lord, is more holy than your word. In the New Testament, there's agreement in that statement because it says there, there is no other name above heaven or in heaven whereby we must be saved. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. There's power in the name of Jesus. He holds all things together by the word of His power. He is the word of God. John tells us very, very specifically in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And by Him all things were made, the Word of God tells us. Without Him nothing was made. Are you getting the impression that the name of Jesus is more than just a name? I hope you do. It's life. It's power. It's glory. It's above all things, visible and invisible. His name is great. Jesus is here presenting to His apostles, the disciples that followed Him for those three and a half years, 
this new revelation, this new covenant, and it's ratified by the blood that he is about to shed. So this cup, this bread that he's showing them as symbols of that great thing that he is accomplishing through his willingness to go to the cross, it is so, so very important. So very necessary for us to observe. When they went out from there, Matthew just records to us that they sung a hymn as they went out and went to the Mount of Olives. Now remember, Jesus had said, who it is that will betray him. Matthew tells us Jesus' response. You have said it, Judas. He doesn't give any more details. So from the time that he spoke to Judas those words, and the time that they go out to sing a hymn, there is much that happens. And it's recorded for us in John's Gospel. So I'd like you to turn there with me, if you would. And we'll read through portions of what John has to say with regarding to those things that he tells us that took place at the same hour. And to get a full understanding, you need to read all of the verses found in the portion we're rereading from verse 31 of chapter 13 all the way through to the end of chapter 17 and beyond in John's Gospel because he gives so much more detail. I'm going to read in John's Gospel, chapter 13, beginning with verse 21. He had just identified his betrayer. And he says in verse 21, When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now John is talking here and he's really referring to himself. He says, Simon Peter therefore motioned to John, to him, to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now there at the table, they're reclining at this Jewish feast at a very low table, actually to the floor, where they are resting on their elbow and their feet are away from the table. Their, their shoulder, left shoulder, is near the table. Their right hand is used to dip their bread into that sop that I mentioned, the memorial service that they are participating in. John is on his right-hand side because it tells us here that he leaned his head on Jesus' breast. So he's very close by and he's right next to Jesus and he looks up to Jesus as he's leaning on Jesus' breast. He says, who, Lord? And Jesus responds and says, the one who dips the bread in the sop with me. Now, they're all around this very U-shaped long table and John is on his right we're very certain, I believe it is correct, that Judas was on his left. Because Judas would be able to, being close by Jesus, to dip into the sop 
that Jesus was dipping into. John would also be, but those were the three who would be able to dip into that particular bowl, and it would be Judas then on his left. Jesus tells John, who asked the question, is the one who dips his bread into the sop. And he takes his bread, and so does Judas, and he dip together in the sop. And that identifies for John who it is. He's the only one that gets it. Everybody else is still wondering, who is this that is going to betray the Lord? But even then, John didn't know exactly how it was going to take place. Perhaps he was only suspicious at this point that maybe that really would be the case, that it would be Judas. But how he would do it, why he would do it, those unknown things must have been going through John's mind. He gives... He who gives that bread, or rather that Jesus gives the bread too when he dips it, that's the one. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Verse 27 and verse 27 in chapter 13 of John's Gospel says, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. I don't think any of the disciples heard that. I believe that was a private statement that Jesus made to Judas. Get it done now. And so Judas leaves at that particular point. In the Passover feast, this happened before Jesus gave them the bread and the cup. Judas did not participate in the Last Supper. John's the only one who gives us that detail. He says in verse 28, But no one at the table knew for what reason he said that to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So Judas now is on his way to betray Jesus. The other disciples don't know what he's doing. Judas probably thought that they might still be there at that upper room, when he brought the authorities with him, but they would have left before he got back. They were on their way to a very, very important place, the Garden of Gethsemane. It appears that Jesus went there very frequently, a place of rest, a place of Worship of his God. A place of quiet solitude. You can go into Jerusalem and there is a garden that is probably very similar to the garden that was described in this passage that we'll be looking at. A place where there are olive trees. In fact, in Jerusalem today, there are olive trees, olive trees that are said to be some 1,800 or so years old. Not quite old enough to have been there when Jesus was here. But the idea is very, very well known and accepted among all the peoples who come to Jerusalem to go to the various sites where they believe Jesus likely would have been. And that's one of the most famous of them all. The Olive Grove. Judas would have known where that was. And I suspect that it's possible that when Judas told the authorities 
that he has a plan to betray his Lord. He would have brought them perhaps first to that upper room and not finding him there, he would have gone directly to that place because he knew that's where Jesus would have been heading. Now, John again gives us a whole lot more detail that the other gospel writers don't give. And it's in chapters 14 through 17 that that detail is given. They were very disturbed at the fact that he had said, I am going to be betrayed. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus tells his disciples what is written for us in John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. These are comforting words that Jesus is giving his disciples. Judas is not with them. In chapter 15, Jesus talks about the fact that he is the true vine and they are the branches. He says in verse 1 of chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Judas is not with them. He says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, and without me you can do nothing. Remember I was talking to you earlier about the covenant that we have with Jesus. It's a new covenant, and it's not based on what we are doing on behalf of a commitment that we have made. It's all about what we are willing to receive from God. He does it all. And here he says, you have a means by which you can indeed show your appreciation for what God has done. And that is simply by abiding vine. You are branches of that vine. And he's saying here, abide in me. That word abide just simply means stay attached. Stay connected. Don't depart. Don't move away. Receive from me that which I desire to give you. And that which he desires to give you is the very source of life for you and for I. And he says, by this, my Father is glorified. That you, And you can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That's why he later on tells the disciples in chapter 16 of the work of the Holy Spirit that is going to be coming in his place. He says in verse 5 of chapter 16, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. He goes on to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine. He tells the disciples, don't be afraid. I will not leave you orphanless, or as orphans rather. You will be protected. There will be one who will come alongside, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us to enable us to do those things, to serve him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength in fulfillment of that covenantal arrangement that he has made for us. 
And then in chapter 17, in John's Gospel, Jesus gives this marvelous prayer. Now, we know that when the disciples asked Jesus to show us how to pray, Jesus gave them a model prayer, which we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. I submit to you that chapter 17 of John's Gospel is the true Lord's Prayer. It is Jesus crying out to his Father to let him fulfill everything that was required of him and that he might be then able to come back into that place of glory that he had with the Father from the beginning. It's a marvelous prayer that Jesus is relating to his Father in such a marvelous way and an appeal that is made not only for him to be able to get back to that place of glory, but that all who follow him will also see that very glory of Christ in the last day. It is a remarkable, wonderful prayer that Jesus prays. He says in verse 20 of chapter 17, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. You believe in what the apostles have said, that things that have been written for your benefit and for mine, those things that have been recorded in this New Testament book of the Bible that you hold in your hands, these things are the one that God in sundry times and diverse places spoke through the uh, prophets. But now in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. And by His apostles, the Word of God has been spread abroad so that we can believe, we can receive, we can trust, we can praise our God because He has done it. That's what Jesus initiated for us at this Last Supper. That's what we have the benefit of and participating in when we take this bread and this cup, the fulfillment of those wonderful promises of God, those things that He has said that have come true, and those things that He has said that are yet to come true. They all are the Word of God. And they come from the lips of Jesus and from His apostles to us. How precious is His Word. When David wrote in the Old Testament, Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. David knew the fact that the Word of God was precious to him. And I would hope that it is precious to every one of us here in this room. That each one of us would be able to say, as David said, Your word, Lord, I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. But when we do sin, and you will and I will sin, there is a Father in heaven and we have an advocate with Him in heaven. That's Jesus Christ our Lord. And our advocate stands on our behalf interceding for you and for me when we do fall into sin. And he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our God. He knows what we are capable of. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. And he demonstrates that in the passage that we are about to go into as we read Matthew's account. Because he knows not only Judas is going to betray him, but he knows the hearts of every one of his disciples. And we find in the passage that we're about to look at today some rather disturbing things about one in particular of those disciples. He says in verse 31 of chapter 26 where we have begun, we'll go back to that now, chapter 26, verse 31 of Matthew's Gospel, and it says there, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
Zechariah is a prophet who spoke those words in prophetic statement with regard to the Messiah. He is the one known as the shepherd. And the sheep that followed him are his disciples. And it tells us Jesus here saying that that scripture that Zechariah recorded for us in the Old Testament is now fulfilled at that moment. When he declared to them that every single one of you are going to fly And they did. However, Peter didn't think so. Take a look at verse 32. After I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And then Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. He's making a rather bold statement here. And I'm sure he intended to be exactly as faithful to Jesus as he is here describing. I will never depart, and even if all of these do, not me. I'm going to stick by your side, Lord. You are the Lord. He already identified Jesus as the Christ. He had said, why would we go anywhere else? You're the one that has the words of life. Peter had acknowledged those wonderful things about Jesus. He spoke them. He believed them. And he's here convinced that he will stand with Jesus, no matter what happens. Good intentions are never enough. Jesus says in verse 34, But Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you, Peter, you dirty, stinking rat, Peter, he doesn't put it that way. He just simply says, You will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. No way, Lord. I'm your faithful servant to the end. But so did all the other disciples say the same thing, it says. They all agreed with Peter. No, no, no. Now, Peter had said, these other guys, you can't trust them, but you can trust me. And now they're right with Peter and saying, oh, hey, we're right with Peter. We agree with Peter. We won't leave your side, Jesus. No way. So they all were in agreement. Think about that. They all were willing in the flesh. Or were they? Jesus in verse 36 said, and, or came to them, with them, rather, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's John and James, Those were the three that always were together alone with Jesus when he went on specific places and things to do by them with him. They were established as the three. The three were with him and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And then he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh, my father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Some people look at that as being an indication that Jesus was unwilling to go to the cross. Didn't want that to happen. He was afraid, they say. Let me give you reason to say that that's just simply hogwash. 
Jesus was never afraid of death. The Bible tells us that He endured the shame and the suffering of the cross, looking beyond that to the glory that would be His. Luke tells us over and over again, He set His face like a flint to Jerusalem. He was prepared. That's why He came. That was the reason why He was born. And that is the reason why He was not unwilling to go forward with His plan. But He's not saying that about the crucifixion that He had to endure. He's saying that about something else. It is a reference in this passage of a cup that must be drunk. He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from you. Well, what is that cup that he's referring to? The book of Psalms tells us what that cup is. It's the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was the only one who could and would drink that cup. It was intended for all sinners. The book of Psalms tells us about that cup. And it tells us about all the wicked will drink down that cup. All the dregs, all of the terrible taste, everything about that cup of wrath will be borne by those who are sinners. But Jesus is here saying, this cup, if there's any other way but for me to drink this cup, then let it be so. Otherwise, Lord, if it is not possible, then your will be done. Jesus is acknowledging that this is a very terrible thing that he has to endure. And he's calling out to his Father, I just want you to know, Lord God Almighty, that I'm willing to do this. Even though I am without sin, I am willing to be sin for all of those ever who have lived on the face of the earth. Because that is the purpose that I was sent. Not my will in the flesh, but your will be done. But then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here we have a statement by Jesus that we need to take a look at. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember, they are not yet truly born again. They've been followers of Christ. They won't receive the Spirit of God until after the resurrection. And here they are in their mortal bodies, men who are reluctant to go to the death that Jesus is willing to go to. Spirit is willing. Flesh is weak. When the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, it just simply means you had good intentions, like Peter did, but you don't have the strength to go through with that which you think you can do. Again, Jesus knows Peter far better than Peter knows himself. And you can say the same thing about each one of us. It's still the same truth today. So what's it take? It takes the Spirit of God to enter into our lives, to redeem us, to regenerate us, to make us to be born again of the Spirit, to enable us to serve Him, not by our own strength, not through our own merit, not by our own wisdom or intellect, but by the Spirit of God, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. These are the things that Jesus is here presenting 
to us, as we look at these words, recognize the fact that you and I can never possibly do it on our own because we're just like Peter. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need something more. We need to come to that place where the Spirit is determined to follow Him. And when we are, then we can say, the flesh is denied. That's good. That's a great start. That's where you ought to be, at least initially, that you deny your flesh and you determine within yourself to follow Jesus Christ. And that little song that we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. That's the heart of a determined believer in Jesus Christ. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the work of God going along with you and teaching you and guiding you and helping you, instructing you. That's good. Your spirit is determined. And you are denying your, your flesh. But that's not enough. That's still not enough, my friends. What you need is commitment. And when I suggest that we need commitment, I mean this. You're willing to die for Him. When your spirit is committed, you must realize that your flesh is crucified. Paul says it that way. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But not I, but Christ lives in me. For the life that I now live, I live by faith in the One who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul said, you must reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin, alive unto Christ. The flesh must be crucified. Spirit is committed. The flesh is crucified. That's where He wants you and me. How can I get there? You can't. He can. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. We need His Spirit, His empowerment. No other way, no other possibility. Read on with me from verse 42 where it says, Again, a second time He went away praying and saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass from Me, unless I drink it, Your will be done. It is the only way. He knew that. Again, asking that God's will be done. And He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So He said to them, He left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, I believe that there's a long pause between that verse and verse 46. He lets them sleep for a season. But the time is at hand. And in verse 46 we read these last words. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now they will see who the betrayer is. They must have had some kind of suspicion about it. But perhaps they didn't. Perhaps it did indeed take them by surprise. 
perhaps after having slept for so long, after a big meal that they had just celebrated the Passover with, they were perhaps not very clear in their minds. A cloudiness had come over them from the drowsiness that had resulted from the long sleeping that they had just been through. Whatever. Jesus is wide awake. Jesus is prepared. Jesus is already committed. Already committed. And he will be crucified. But he will raise again from the dead. That's the good news. We won't get to that good news for a while yet. But we've got more to come. There are some things that Jesus must still have to go through. Trials that he must subject himself to. Mock trials. Illegal trials. Scourging. People slapping him in the face with a bag over his head so he couldn't see who's giving the blow and doesn't know that the blow is coming but gets hit on every side by wicked men who are supposedly religious men. Those are the things that we'll be looking at as we move forward in our study of Matthew's Gospel. Put into your mind the things that we've just related to us here today. The meaning of that supper and the limitations of our flesh.